I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to Open Book, where I talk with some of the most interesting and brilliant minds in our world today. In this show, I'll bring on guests in business, politics, entertainment, and more to go deep into a piece of their work, whether it's a highly anticipated book, an in-depth feature story, or an opinion piece that has captured my attention. We'll dig into why it matters to you and how their work is shaping our future. On today's open book, I talk with best-selling author and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, James Stewart. We all know the truth can be crazy. In my nearly 60 years of life, I've seen some wild shit. And I'll tell you, you can't get any wilder than James Stewart's new book, Unscripted. With co-author Rachel Abrams, James revealed the inside story of Paramount, and the Redstone family. From wealth and greed to sex and manipulation, we talk about everything they uncovered in this conversation. Joining us now on Open Book, one of my favorite authors. I'm a fanboy of James Stewart. I've read every single one of your books, starting way, way back with Den of Thieves, Disney Wars, etc. You are a best-selling author, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Uh, you have a great byline in the New York Times. But I think this could be your opus. I honestly think that we're <laughs> going to discuss it in a second. It's called Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. It's an instant New York Times bestseller. I have so many questions, James, because I read the book and I think <laughs> I, I told my staff, I started this book on a Sunday and I finished it on Monday afternoon. And my wife was like, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, this thing is so good. Isn't the truth stranger than fiction, <laughs> James B. Stewart? It absolutely is. I mean, the idea of the title unscripted was that it's like it's a reality show because it is true. And honestly, if I even could make it up, which I don't have that kind of imagination, but if I did, no, I don't think anybody would believe it. They said, oh, no, this is too crazy. And I have to say, when we were doing the reporting, there were some sequences in their scenes. And Rachel and I were, were reporting on this and, and she would report to me and I would say, you know, wait a minute. No, no, no. That, that can't be right. You know, we, we, we need to double, triple, quadruple check this. And then it did turn out to be right. <laughs> Our jaws, jaws kept dropping. Well, you, ha you had such great detail in the book, de detail from uh, adversaries, detail from friends, detail from family members. I mean, it was just literally an incredible rendition of what can go on when things run amok. And I, I remember subbing the Redstone quite well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the scene for you. I was a 28-year-old sell-side institutional salesperson at Goldman Sachs, and Sumner Redstone had come in to make a presentation. And I remember being riveted by him because he was a Harvard Law School graduate. I had gone to Harvard Law School and we were raising him money to begin the process of the consolidation of that Viacom empire. And then ultimately the very famous scene a couple of years later when he bought Paramount and he bested Barry Diller, which obviously made the empire what it, what it ultimately became. But let's start there, if you don't mind, maybe one of the last of the old time moguls. Who is Sumner Redstone? Well, Sumner Redstone at his peak was certainly one of, if not the wealthiest and most powerful media moguls of his day and probably of all time. I mean, Forbes put his fortune at uh, close to $15 billion at one point. He controlled, you know, major publicly traded companies 
CBS, obviously very well known, and Viacom, the owner of very well-known cable channels, you know, MTV, Comedy Central, a, a whole slew of uh, important media ventures. So he had an enormous influence over, you know, how and what Americans and people all over the world consumed in the way of media and entertainment, including everything from the news at CBS to, uh, you know, cartoons and, and comedy. Uh, so he was very, very, uh, very powerful. And you, you refer to his takeover of Paramount. He beat out Barry Diller to, to win the bidding war for that. If you'd ask him, he might have said that was the high point of his life. It, he never stopped talking about that, how he beat Barry Diller, who was his own legend in the media world, sure. to get Paramount. And it was part of his ruthless ambition to always win if there was a contest, whether it was on the tennis court with his own daughter, who he insisted on beating and was furious if she beat him, to uh, besting somebody you know, in the financial world to take over these assets. You could wonder, like, well, did he overpay? I mean, he was going to pay whatever it took to win, but he did benefit from the extraordinary surge of success and revenue and profits in the cable world, which until a few years ago was probably the most lucrative business model ever conceived. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was a recurring business model. It had very stable cash flow. That's why guys like Mario Gabelli, who you, you have in the book and others, uh, John Malone, were big investors in that business. There's a great story about Redstone. It's well known, but I'd like you to retell it here for our podcast listeners. He's caught in the... Uh, the Copley Plaza Hotel. Yes. Uh, and he and there's a fire. Set the scene for us. I believe it's 1979. And he's got to save himself. How does he do it? Yeah, this was a formative experience in, in his adult life. No question about it. He was staying at the Copley Plaza. A fire broke out on his floor. It invaded in his room. The only way out was through the window. He went out through the window. There was nowhere to go. He was hanging by his hands from the window ledge. The flames are licking out of the window. One of his hands, he, he got off. He's, now he's hanging by one hand and it was badly, badly burned. But he hung on there until the fire department rescued him. It, they did surgery, but his hand never really covered. Yeah. It was disfigured for the rest of his life. That gave him this sort of sense of invincibility. He would sometimes refer to this, look, if he survived that, he would survive it. And he went around in his later years saying, I'm never going to die. I mean, I'm eternal, you know, which, <laughs> you know, obviously couldn't have really believed that, but that was the message he, he wanted to put out there. Now, not known until decades later after this incident in the hotel room with him was his then mistress. She escaped out the window before him, was able to get away before the flames caught her. And that too was a clue to the rest of his life because having, you know, by his own account, never even dated in high school, college at Harvard, which he graduated in record time, Harvard Law School. Believe me, he started making up for lost time in his adult life. Yes. Well, there's no no question about that. It's seminal for many reasons, but I'm, I'm going to test something on you because we both have dealt with megalomaniacs over our lifetimes, and you've seen them in the business setting, the political setting. Some people are so brazen and have such chutzpah and are so bold that they can manifest their lives. Is Sumner Redstone an example of that? Uh, well, he definitely had a very uh, strong willpower, no question about it. And, you know, you didn't want to get in his way. By the way, a quality that I think his daughter, Sherry, inherited and figures very prominently in the story. He had very strong willpower, but I, I don't know that I would go that far. There was some self-awareness on his part. And one of his confidants, if you want to 
call her that, told us that this all this business about never wanting to die in part was because he said one of his lines was, oh, I'm, I am going to go to hell. I know I'm going to go to hell anyway, <laughs> so I might as well do whatever I want now. And he feared this reckoning. He feared death. He feared that he was going to be called to account for the many bad things he did. And he did do a lot of bad things. But I do give him credit for at least being aware of it. Some of these people, I think you described, never seem have any sense of what kind of impression they're making on other people or other people are reacting. By the way, no no remorse, no conscience, no no ability to say, okay, hey, I don't want to do that. You know, there's obviously a very famous scene in Dante's Inferno where the ninth circle of hell is a frozen lake. It's where Lucifer lives who betrayed God. He's down there with two people. What did Dante say? The worst thing that you could do on this planet, according to Dante, was betray a friend. And so who lives with a, the angel Lucifer in the ninth circle? It's Judas, who's the metaphor for the betrayal of your God or your religion, your conscience, mm-hmm. or Brutus, who is the betrayer of the state, somebody that's a traitor to their own country. And Summer Redstone did not seem like he had many morals, frankly, but he did seem like he had this guilt-ridden thing. You tell this amazing story. It's the 2009 Milken Conference, and he's taking every antioxidant known to man. <laughs> that's what he said. And he's, and he's going to keep himself alive. It's hard not to think of succession with Logan Roy when oh, I read course. it, but Logan Roy has nothing on Sumner Redstone. Would you agree with that? Well, I deliberately did not watch succession until I had finished writing the book because I didn't want it even subliminally, you know, affecting because other people were saying, oh, this book you're working on sounds a lot like that show Succession. So I waited and then I have watched it since then. And, I, you know, I, I'm lapping it up. It's a it's a great show. But you're right. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, the the qualities of Sumner are so extreme. You're right. Logan Roy has nothing on Sumner. Sumner is is pretty brazen in particular. I mean, first of all, Sumner, he chews through various executives who work for him. And that's probably not all that different from Logan Roy. You don't see Logan Roy firing a whole lot of people. But anyway, so Sumner got rid of like, you know, various CEOs until the very end when he mysteriously did not. That's another story. But he also, he ran through these women, you know, the mistresses, the wives, you know, the young women to the point towards the end. I don't think succession would dare go here, but you've got Sumner hitting on his grandson's girlfriend. And snatching them away from him. Yeah. Why would the girlfriend, the beautiful, you know, model, whatever he's dating, want to go with the 92-year-old grandfather? Well, how about, you know, you throw a few million dollars to sweeten the deal and yeah. Yeah, they, you know, they he, did he, it. He stood on his wallet, obviously, and uh, he was a Lothario as a result of standing on his wallet. The, the child of one of his mistresses, was that his... Well, that's that's one of the mysteries. Because you talk about the fertility clinic uh, where the couple who ended up breaking up, they go to the fertility clinic. And then, I mean, I'm going to be a little graphic here, but it is my podcast. The fertility specialist (laughs) says, well, we could use a needle to go into your penis down into your testicle to take the sperm like we did with the old man. With the old man, right. exactly. It, it very much, there is certainly strong evidence and eyewitness testimony in our book that, yes, that they went to the fertility clinic, that they probably did take sperm from Sumner. But what I, I cannot take the next step to say that that sperm actually conceived the child. But I will say that, you know, many people, first of all, the child was named, uh, her middle name was Red. Yeah. And many people thought, oh, well, that's an obvious reference mm-hmm. to Redstone. Mm-hmm. And she had his hair coloring, mm-hmm. red mm-hmm. also. And 
many people thought there was a resemblance. Now, you know, it's it, with a, a child, you know, looking like a parent or not. I mean, that's, you know, who knows what they're going to be like when they grow up. Right. That's all I can say. Readers are going to have to make right. their own minds. Well, I, had a, I had to ask because that was one of the open questions as I Well, it's, was it is a good question. Book. That was one of my open questions. But let me just say that the, the final evidence is the, the child, Alexander Red, was in his will. Even though he had a dis- huge, disastrous breakup yes. with the child's mother, mm-hmm. he kept the child in his will. Mm-hmm. So I leave it to readers to infer what they want yeah. from that. No, it's interesting. Listen, I mean, the guy the guy was, there's a, there's a tragedy going on here in terms of uh, dealing with the elderly as well. And so yes. we're in an age of cancelizations. I'm going to be very sensitive with this, but I'm going to frame it for you and ask you to react to it. So he's elderly. You write about his crying jags in the book where he gets overly sensitized. Some of his nurses feel that there's some elder abuse. But then you have his middle-aged children or his middle-aged daughter in particular trying to figure out a way to protect him from the shenanigans that he's doing. And I guess I guess the question I have for you is for all concerned family members out there where you could have a eccentric father or a patrician getting taken advantage of by young women, or maybe not, maybe he's taking advantage of them. What do you say to all that? What's your reaction to, like, I was reading that saying, geez, if this was my dad, what the hell would I do in a situation like yeah. this? And it's not much, right? There's not much you can do, is there, James? No, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because um, I do feel this is a, it's a very significant part of the book. And anyone who has an aging parent, who has lived with an aging parent, has tried to take care of an aging parent, is going to be able to relate to this. When you see clearly, it, it's very amply documented in the book, that Sumner was no longer at his peak, either physically or mentally. He was substantially impaired mm-hmm. in both respects. Mm-hmm. And that made him very vulnerable to emotional and other influences. And these these two women, one of them supposedly his fiance, she did have this giant diamond ring. Mm-hmm. The other, a former girlfriend, moved in there and started cutting him off from everyone else and insinuating themselves into the will, into the trust funds. Oh, and they getting money, getting money, living, living money, like living will money too, though, right? Money. Well, yeah, well, you know, they made him sell his CBS stock. And one afternoon, he did wire transfer. They, they walled him off and he did wire transfers to them of $90 million in one afternoon. Yeah. And we document that they they made a, out with at least $150 million from him. And they were so close to taking over the, the whole company, which is another fascinating story that a lot of people don't realize. So here's the the daughter. So the, the nurses, they filed an elder abuse complaint with the Los Angeles authorities. And they started emailing and texting Sherry, his daughter, to tell her things that were going on in the, in the mansion. And she said, like, at some point, she said, you know, this is too painful, Mary. I can't really deal with this. Will you deal with my son? And her son, Tyler, took over that mission. And that's what really drew Sherry back into the story and gets the plot in motion. She didn't really want to run his media empire or even be involved. He treated her horribly his, his whole life. And yet she loved him. Yeah. I mean, and that's another important part of this story, I think. It's a family saga. The, the Scaramucci's have a motto, the Scaramucci's, let's put the fun in the word dysfunctional. You know what I mean? You can have very dysfunctional <laughs> relationships, but what are you going to do? You still love your family members, right? And I think that's one of, the, exactly. one of the big issues here that she was struggling with. Uh, I'm going to switch gears. want to talk about Les Moonves for a second. He's a Long Islander like me. He's from Rockville Center. He was an actor, had a, let's call it a media 
mediocre career as an actor, but he had a wonderful eye for talent and programming and so forth. Tell us a little bit about your observation of Les Moonves, and we can get into the situation yeah, well, with the L.A. police captain that he worked for him, et cetera. But tell us your observation of him. Well, Les Moonves was the the chairman and chief executive of, of CBS when it was owned by Somner Redstone. And he was phenomenally successful in that role. As you, as you point out, he had a great eye for casting. He was intimately involved. He read the scripts. He, he had so, so, somehow this golden gut for hits. He put many hits on, on the air. He took CBS from the fourth rank network to the, the number one network where it stayed year after year after year. I mean, a f- phenomenal run. The uh, Hollywood reporter named him most powerful man in entertainment one year, but he had this dark, secret, uh, which caught up with him when the Me Too movement started to unfold. And that brought him into conflict with Sherry, who was beginning to reassert herself mm-hmm. in the uh, the Redstone Empire, and ultimately led to his downfall. But on the way, again, to me, one of the most astonishing things in the books, and we have it documented in a trove of like emails and texts and interview notes and transcripts of interviews, he didn't really get fired because of the assaults he made on on, very, on various women. It was more the cover-up, which I could get into. But, you know, going back to who he was, mm-hmm. one of the things that I found so sort of surprising about this is Moonves was a very handsome guy. He was, a rich, he was rich and he was powerful. Mm-hmm. Now, if he really wanted to go out with various women, there was no shortage. I mean, look, at he was no Harvey Weinstein. He was popular. He was well-liked. He was amiable, charming. And yet... There is this Achilles heel that obviously we now know, you know, some men have. It's like they don't want to go out with women who would agree to it. They have to go for the ones that won't or something. I mean, look, I'm not a psychiatrist about this, but, um, you know, and it proved his downfall. But there were, you know, multiple instances and people went on the record. We interviewed um, and one of the worst examples was when he had an early morning meeting with his diabetes doctor and he you know, in the examination room, he, uh, you know, pounce, pounces on her and then proceeds to do some things that even your show, Anthony, I probably can't go into right. the graphic right. no, details, no, no. You, yeah, but, yeah. They're, that, but they're bad. I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to ruin the whole book. I want I want people that listen to open books to go out and buy the book. I mean, it's just so, it's so, <laughs> yes, it's so, it's so fascinating. So, no, I don't want to get into all of that, but I just want to set the stage for these things. You've got parent-children dynamic grandparent grandchildren dynamic you have a corporate dynamic going on you have an elderly person that i'm going to be very blunt here probably didn't get laid a lot in high school and so now he's taking it out on the uh, rest of us he's sort of the revenge of the nerd and yet through all of this you have this very successful media conglomerate, right? And so I guess the question is, it was being undermanaged by people, not Les Moonbez, perhaps he was quite talented, but it was working anyway. Is that not fair to say, James? Well, to an extent, as in his declining years, uh, Sumner's, you know, vigilant oversight of his top managers began to falter. He was very loyal to them, unlike the previous ones he fired. Moonves still was doing very well at CBS. CBS was doing very well, although, you know, the streaming wars were just starting to begin and that they were casting a shadow over that CBS earnings model. And by then, the Viacom properties, including the Paramount Studio and the various cable channels, were in a significant downward spiral. That had terrible management. You know, Philippe Domont, who was the CEO of Viacom and was often referred to as a surrogate son 
to Sumner. And by, from all appearances, he was, which was a, another dimension in the family drama. Um, Sumner just would not remove him. He was very loyal to him. He did treat him like a, like the son. It was his real son. He drove away. Yeah. So he hung on way too long. And today, after all the dust settled and, you know, Sherry finally emerged and, was, and, and put these companies back together in one, even now, the world has changed drastically. And the old models are deteriorating. The streaming wars are heating up. And I think there are very, most people, you know, investors and analysts on Wall Street feel that today, uh, something further is going to have to happen because they don't have Paramount Global, which is what the company is now called, big as it is. And it has a lot of hits and successes. It's still not big enough to compete with an, an Amazon, Netflix, and Disney. So it's a potential takeover target, right? I mean, if it can get through an F. Yeah, it's a takeover or merger, ta- takeover merger target. Merger. And by the way, you know, Warren, Warren Buffett has taken a big stake in it, which is one, one thing that's propped the stock up. Right. But I think that's because, um, you know, many people think there's going to be a deal in the future that will be lucrative for the Paramount shareholders. What do you think Redstone himself would be thinking about the company, the stock price, the fact that a company like his could be taken over at this time? What do you think he would be thinking? Well, he, he never wanted to be taken over. Right. And, and what finally did cause the rupture with Philippe was when Philippe casting about for ways to try to get the stock price up and, you know, not to mention his own, you know, compensation and bonuses was, was trying to sell off a big chunk of the Paramount studio. And that was a big misjudgment. He may have thought that Sumner was too far gone to fight him on that, but it was, <laughs> you almost see like Sumner levitating from his sick bed to block that. And that's, that proved to be Philippe's downfall. But he, did, he never wanted to give up an asset he didn't want to sell. He always wanted to be a buyer. He would be on the prowl, I suspect, to find something to buy. Yeah, to buy underneath him to make it bigger as opposed to him going into something else, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's his, that's his MO. Borrow, spend, outbid, get bigger. How do you, when you step back and you look at our world. Uh, in this book, we have o- overt sexism. We have overt misogyny. Overt. Um, and, but we also know, because you and I, have, unfortunately, have been around the block enough times that we do have it in other industries. We have it on Wall Street. We have it in most industries. There's a Me Too movement out there to try to quell or put down some of that. But it exists. And is the Me Too movement really that successful, James? Or are we just under the surface of the Me Too movement having all of this sort of activity happening anyway? Well, I was certainly surprised uh, when I saw the evidence in this book at how strong the misogyny and the discrimination against women at the board levels, mm-hmm. at the executive Even with levels. Sherry Redstone herself, as you point out in the book, you know, she's mis- Yes. I mean, the, the directors, and we, we have so, so much incriminating evidence here. You know, they'd say one thing publicly, but then privately to each other, they'd be sending these texts and emails. In fact, somebody, some reader told me like, no CEO is ever going to write another text again after reading this, because <laughs> there you see what they're really thinking. And it's, you know, it's pretty appalling. And, you know, the Me Too movement's in full swing here. Yes. I, you know, look, the Me Too movement has made some gains. No question about it. There are more women directors. There still aren't a lot of women top executives, but it is a long way to go. And you're right. You know, look, we delve deeply into this company, but look at McDonald's where there's, you know, they've had scandals in the CEO suite and problems with, with women. And that's about as heartland a company as you're ever going to find. So I think it's pretty widespread. And again, it was surprising to me how little, and, and another thing we discovered, you know, we interviewed lots of women, including one who described being assaulted by Sumner Redstone. And 
these women that we, a few of them went on the record and names are in there, but a lot of them right now, I mean, like within the last year, were afraid to have their names in there, to be, be publicly identified for fear that their careers would be ruined and damaged. I was surprised that that hasn't changed that much. You know, you, you to hear other, some people talk about it, it's like, you know, the, the, the sisterhood of the victims have, have come together and they're, you know, they're having, they're, you know, rushing to be on network television. No. Yeah. We found that they're still afraid of retaliation and feel that if they are blowing a whistle or making these kinds of allegations. Oh, yeah. No, they get they get kicked out of the reindeer games exactly. and then they, they lose their ability to make money. Um, it's happening everywhere. What was the one thing when you finished your manuscript? What was the one thing that you had learned about Sumner Redstone that prior to your research you didn't know? Well, I, I, I learned I learned a lot, uh, believe me, some of which I maybe would just as soon not have known. But <laughs> wish um, you had unlearned. I, you know, but look, here's something that I think is really important. It's, it's kind of almost biblical. Um, two, two prongs to it. One, you know, here, here he is. He's so wealthy. He's so powerful. He's surrounded by high-priced lawyers, advisors, tax people, planners. And it's, it's a mess. It's all that money and power didn't protect him. And the corollary to that is, so he was always, he was afraid of this final reckoning. But here's where it gets biblical. I think he got his, he didn't have to die to get his reckoning. He got his final reckoning in those last years of his life. Now, there's a, a cautionary, tale, cautionary tale, I think, where everybody, you think you're not going to pay the price and, until, you know, you're dead and gone and, you know, you meet your maker. Mm-mm-mm. No, it's, a lot of this happens right here in this world. I, I absolutely saw that. The money, I'm not, I think money can enhance happiness. You know, nobody wants to be poor, but money doesn't buy it. If, if you don't have it independent of the money, you don't think the money is going to get it. Yeah. I mean, he got all that money and he drove his family away. He drove the people away who loved him. And then he was very vulnerable and isolated in those final years. Yeah, no, listen, I mean, I, I don't know who said it, but I'll paraphrase the quote. If, you're, if you can't enjoy your morning coffee, just sitting there in the simplicity of the coffee and drinking it, you're not going to enjoy the yacht. Okay, you're going to be equally dissatisfied. There's nothing about the money that's going to make it different for you. And the happiness comes from the inside. You're so right. So we, we, we go to our authors and I come up with five words or, or five subjects. I ask our authors for sort of a quick fire, few word reaction. Okay, and so I want to fire these off to you. Okay, ready? Shari Redstone. Loving and determined uh, and constantly underestimated and smarter than you might think. And, and But ultimately, this, she's the survivor in, in this kind of real life uh, reality show. And she was right about a lot of things that she was ignored about. And um, if anyone, you know, can I think steer this this empire into this treacherous future. She's the one to do it. I think she is kind of the hero of the story. I agree with you on that. Holland and Herzer. Well, I probably shouldn't say this. I, I kind of call them the flip side of the Me Too movement. You know, they were taking advantage of him. If there's any question about it, there's ample evidence there. And let's don't pretend this is, doesn't happen right. elsewhere. And it's, you know, it's been a time-honored path yeah, they for prayed, some women. They preyed on an old man to get extract money from the old man for their families. And they, they had a whole psychological design of walling him off from his loved ones. And, you know, you could say, look, they succeeded. They they walk out of there with over $150 million. They're now, you know, described as, self-described as, quote, renowned philanthropists. They're on the boards of major prestigious institutions in LA. They go to the charity balls. They 
openings. They're on the red carpet well, money, in designer money clothes. Money buys those things, James. Money buys those things. You know, money, as you know, uh, rich people can launder themselves through these charities, you know, and, you know, and, and people have short-term memories. Les Moonves. A, a tragic figure, ultimately so talented and with so many abilities, who had this fatal flaw in, in how he treated women. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, again, he's rich too, yeah. but he's he's in disgrace and in isolation. And uh, that fatal yeah, flaw he, ended up he, taking he over the a, rest of his life. He could life. be a top of the world media mogul given his talent, but these, these indiscretions have cost them that. But I guess what I'm wondering is it's sort of like the uh, Mad Men, you know, the 1960s mentality. I guess mm-hmm. these guys didn't adapt to the times or maybe they got caught prior to the times adapting. Well, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I think there is if the times if there's something about the risk taking and the getting away with it and the thrill of that, yes. I think, I guess. Yes. And I, I think mean, that's it. And how, how far can you go? And, you know, trust me, you'll see in this book, it went really far. No, listen, I mean, I, I, I couldn't put the book down. OK, la, la, last one. The name Redstone. Yes. Well, that was a made up name. Their, their family name was actually Roth's. Stein. Right. It makes a difference in name, though, James. No, it makes a difference. In oh, name. yeah. Well, I, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I like my name is Stuart. And, you know, we, we were always very proud of the fact that was a Scottish name. And my father had a kilt. And, you know, we we, we had all kinds of, you know, Scottish lore and stuff like that. So we we're proud of that. Right. I I would have felt bad if he changed our name away from from Stuart. But I. I don't know. Was this because, you know, Rothstein was seen as a Jewish name? I- Factually, it was too Jewish for Sumner Redstone. He wanted to anglicize it. And he thought in that patrician world of Bostonians and Brahmins, it was going to help him. And perhaps right. it did. You know, it's just an interesting maybe, thing that people do as they're trying to morph themselves in life. Okay, my last question, sir. Speaking of stock prices, I want you to comment, if you don't mind, on Disney. I think one of your other great books is Disney War, uh, which looks at the whole essence of Disney, the declared war on Michael Eisner, the stress and strain of it, the Bass Brothers were there in that book. I mean, you had everything going on in that book, corporate intrigue, corporate takeover, evolution. Uh, Of course, Bob Iger is now back at Disney. Disney's been uh, caught in the mousetrap of Ron DeSantis and some of the things that have gone on in the culture wars. What do you think happens to Disney? What do you think of Disney? Uh, well, look, Disney's a fascinating story. I saw people have said you, you have to do Disney War too. I don't know about that. But uh, Disney is caught in some of the major seismic shifts here that are affecting all the big media companies. It's trying to deal with the, the shift from streaming. And you know, I think a lot of people didn't realize how important the cable revenues were to Disney, especially ESPN. That was just an unbelievable profit center and cash cow for them for so long. And that whole cable model is deteriorating. So that's been pulling, you know, revenue and profits away while they've been having to spend so heavily. And what brought Iger back was a quarter where they lost, you know, a billion four in one quarter, most of it on, you know, programming and streaming service. The bigger the Disney Plus got, the more money they lost. It, you know, it's supposed to be going the other way. Right. There are some significant structural challenges there, and I, it's puzzling to me in a way that Iger would want to go back at a time when he, he like he left with a sterling reputation. Yes, 
He did a fabulous job there. Some great mergers, the Marvel Studios, Star Wars, some Lucasfilm. Great mergers. Mm-hmm. But then he, then he took on all that debt. You know, he got into a costly bidding war for the Fox assets. Comcast leaped in there for some of that. A lot of people think he overpaid. He got a proxy challenge from Nelson Peltz, which he's rolled back at the moment. But Peltz was saying that, that was a terrible deal. There's all that debt on the balance sheet at a time when they need to spend spend more. And, you know, he's in there trying to write the ship. It's a tall order. Now, the stock got down to about $80. You know, and at that point, I think it's a value play. It went up when he came back, but now it's been trending down again, down in the low 90s today, I think. And I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about, they're up against, you know, Amazon and, and, well, Netflix, but especially Amazon is so huge. And they're going to spend until... There's a handful of survivors here. Will Will Disney be there and be able to raise the prices? They're talking about that, uh, but I think the jury's very, very much out on that. Well, it's a fascinating story. They've also up against it with the culture war in terms of the uh, the positioning in yeah. Florida. They lost that uh, sort of free business zone that was created for them uh, for Walt Disney to move to Florida. I think that was a huge mistake by uh, the governor. By the way, I think there's a uh, there's a proto fascism element to that. He should have left the business alone, and now he's going to exert uh, his political will on businesses. I think that is a very bad tell for the country. If we're going in that direction, that's just my two cents. What's next for you, sir? <laughs> well, I'm working on some, you know, some other, some more good stories at the Times. I did a big piece. I'm not really a media entertainment reporter per se, but I did a, a giant piece on AT and T's management of the Warner assets, and that was a disaster. I mean, AT and T burned through that. Way, they burned through about a hundred billion dollars mm-hmm. of shareholder capital on that mm-hmm. before bailing out. But I love doing uh, longer stories. I love working at the Times, but I love doing books. And um, I like to think I've still got another book or two in me. I, I'm poking around about something. If I could get some sourcing breakthrough. I think I have something that would be pretty uh, dramatic, but it would be uh, it would be pre- premature to say anything more about it right now. Okay, well, you're you're a great writer. I love your byline, but I, I love your books more. The title of this book, brand new, unscripted: the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. What a legacy that is! Huge congratulations to you and Rachel Abrams for putting this book together. It is a New York Times bestseller. It is riveting, and I appreciate you coming on Open Book today. Thank you. Thanks. Great interview. Really. Enjoyed it. Unscripted was unput downable. It was literally one of the best stories that I've read. And it was all true and it was well documented. And as James pointed out, he had literal text message exchanges between the protagonists and antagonists in this book. Unbelievable drama. And so therefore, you know, I'm all over it. I'm a little bit of a gossiper myself, but there's nothing like a James Stewart read. Read Disney War as an example or Den of Thieves, this book unscripted. They all tell real human stories uh, with all of our frailties, all the trials and all of our tribulations. And there's nothing like a 90 plus year old man in love with himself, but in love with sex more. I mean, what could be more fun than that? So anyway, go pick up the book. All right, Mike, you ready for the show today? What show? Well, I'm going to oh, put you back geez. on the podcast. You ready? You know, you liked it. <laughs> I, all right. Okay, I tell people you used to call it the cash pod. You remember when I started doing it? You were, yeah. calling, you were calling it the cash pod as opposed to the podcast. Let me ask you a question while I got you here, okay? Do you like the gossip? 
Do I like to gossip? Not, yeah. not overly dumb. No, you don't like to gossip. You're on the phone all day. You, 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 you literally. I, I don't gossip about people in a derogatory way. I talk about it in a pleasant way. Okay, you talk about it in a pleasant way. Okay, you like people. You want people to do well, right? Yes, I do. Okay. Absolutely. And I okay. like company in my house all the time. And you like company? Like people in my house. Right. Did you read any of the stuff about the uh, the Redstone family with the 95-year-old man that was chasing the young women, trying to have sex no. with them? No. Did you? Yeah, I read the whole book. I was wondering if you read about it. What do you what do, what do you think of men like that? Am I a little crazy though, no? They're trying to recapture their youth, but they can never get it back. Okay, but that's why they do that sort of stuff? Yes, they're cuckoo. All right, so, but mostly men are like this though, in your opinion, right? Not women? Some women are. Some women are. Not as much as men, but some are. Men and women are different. They wrote a book on it. All right. What is the big difference between men and women? Well, they're very close to their children, and the men go out and work and earn a living, but the mother mothers the children if they're good. If they're good. But there are there are mothers that leave their kids because there was one in my family indirectly. All right. Well, let's not bring up too much dirty laundry, Mom. We could bring it up, but everyone, everyone knows the Scaramucci family motto is let's put the fun back in the word dysfunctional. Everybody knows that. So let me, but let, let me ask you a question, Mom. When people are worth a lot of money, Sometimes they get crazy with their power, right? Like they think that they're uh, better than other people, right? Or no? Not all the time. I think it depends on the person. I know that my father had a lot of money when I was growing up, and my mother knew how to spend it. He used to try to hold on to it, but he couldn't hold on to it too well because my mother used to give it to the immigrant friends that came over here. Okay, but I'm talking about like really rich people, you know, like people that are worth like millions and millions of dollars, you know, billionaires and stuff like that. You run into some of them that think that they're high and mighty, right? Or no? Yeah, but usually they came from nothing and they become like that. Because if you're born into money, you get used to it. You think it makes you nuts sometimes if you come from nothing and then have a lot of money. Absolutely. Then okay. that becomes like a power play to the people that are trying right. to survive. So you think the money's made me nuts, Ma? Or no? You could tell me. Absolutely not. I think that you're a wonderful son and that you give to people that need it. But you think some people act crazy with their money and they can get very dramatic, right? Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely. When you're gossiping with your friends, mom, what what do you, you, what do you mean I'm funny? You know you gossip. I mean, you the phone line. Ma, you have call waiting on your phone. And when I call, it's busy, which means you're operating both switches of the call waiting. You're literally right. talking to two people like it's Grand Central Station. Am I wrong? But I'm, I like people. I'm very fortunate. I have a lot of friends. You know, I have a handful that are friends forever that I grew up with. And I have new acquaintances who have become friends. All right, but when you're gossiping, what's some of the juicy gossip? Like, what do you what do you like talking about the most? The boyfriends uh, that you like your 85 year old friends have, or like what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You like talking? I'm gonna go into that. <laughs> you, you, yeah, oh, but you're 86 and you're ready to go, right? I've been told I don't look 86, so I feel very flattered when what, I get told that. Okay, what do they tell you? How old do you look, Ma? What do they say to you? Uh, sometimes I pass for like 72, 74. I've been past for 68. 68. Wow, the guy's really making the move when he says 68, right? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. Italians love drama, Ma, or no? We like the drama or we don't like the drama? Well, I think I've had enough drama. We all have it. We've all had it. 
I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me to chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter. It's also at Scaramucci on Instagram. You can text me at plus one nine one seven nine zero nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think and who you'd like to see on our show next. I'll see you back here next week.